my dad has been teaching on Wednesday nights about the life of Joseph. In fact, he's been teaching through the book of Genesis, spiritual footprints. And he's looked at Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then he finally got to Joseph, and he has begun what will probably be about a six or eight or ten week study on the life of Joseph. And he's already started that, and he'll resume that next Wednesday night. But as I was thinking about it, I knew I had two Wednesday nights to speak, and I thought, well, I don't want to start preaching sermons on Joseph because that's what he's talking about. And yet I kind of want to tie it in at least to that same part of the Scriptures. And we know the book of Genesis, of course, is the first book in the Bible. The the word Genesis is a Greek word. You keep in mind the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but many years later it was translated into Greek. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is known as the Septuagint. And so the Septuagint gave the book, the first book of the Bible, the name Genesis, and it literally means the beginnings. And interestingly enough, when Jesus was on the earth and his disciples, they read, not completely, but they studied out of the Septuagint, many of the Greek-speaking followers of Christ. That was the Bible that they read, the the Greek Old Testament, as it were. And so the word Genesis means beginnings. We know that the book of Genesis begins in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve. We'll see at the end of his study of the life of Joseph, the book of Genesis ends in Egypt with Joseph in a coffin. Think about that. We start out in a garden, and we end up in a coffin. Sin has taken its toll on the human race. As we study life expectancies in the book of Genesis, it's very interesting. You read that some of these people were living six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. By the time we come to the end, we see that life expectancies are going down. Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac lived to be 180. Jacob lived to be 137. Joseph lived to be 110. And so Adam and Eve, who had lived many more hundreds of years, Noah, many more hundreds of years, Methuselah, 969 years, I believe, was his number. Joseph, 110 years, reminds us the wages of sin is death. Sin always has consequences. And so we begin in the Garden of Eden. We end in a coffin down in Egypt. And then the next book, Exodus, starts out. Exodus, of course, means it's talking about when the children of Israel exited Egypt, when they departed from Egyptian bondage. And the next several books in the Old Testament, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are talking about how the children of Israel came out of Egyptian bondage. They wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. It should have taken about 11 days to get to Israel, to the promised land. took them 40 years. Most all of them died in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb of that generation moved into the promised land with the younger generation, and they began to experience what God had promised them all along. And so, If I can use all of this metaphorically, which I can and which I should, because the Bible uses it that way, the New Testament uses it that way, Egypt, you have these three three areas, Egypt, the wilderness, and the promised land. And each one of those things represents something about your life. Egypt represents that time in your life, that place in your life before you got saved. You were in bondage. You weren't under the rule of Pharaoh. You were under the rule of the devil. And so was I. 
And Pharaoh is an Old Testament picture of the devil. He kept God's people in bondage. And that's what the devil wants to do to people today, to keep them and to keep us in bondage to guilt and shame and fear and doubt and confusion and all these horrible things. Anything the devil can do to tie our hands and to keep us in misery and bondage, that's what he wants to do. That's what Egypt represents, the lostness of humanity. The promised land represents the abundant life that is ours in Jesus Christ. Remember what I said last week. The promised land is not a picture of heaven, even though there is a sense in which heaven is the ultimate promised land. Our song says, I'm bound for the promised land, and I I do get that. But if we're being purely biblical, the, the analogy here is not that the promised land represents heaven. The promised land represents the abundant life that is ours in Jesus Christ. The reason I know the promised land doesn't represent heaven is because in the promised land, we read about it in the book of Joshua, when the people moved into the promised land, they were fighting wars. Well, there are not going to be any wars in heaven. Uh, The devil got kicked out already, but I'm saying that war has already been fought. In the promised land, people died. Well, nobody's going to die in heaven. And so the promised land is not a picture of heaven. It is a picture of heaven on earth. It is a picture of the abundant life that is ours in Jesus Christ. You say, John, how would you describe the abundant life? You know, that's a good question, and I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out. I I wanted to have a a definition of the promised land that was so concise that I could have put it on this video wall back here and said, hey, everybody, let's look, and here is the definition of the promised land. And I could have done that, but the, the more I thought about it, the longer it got. And so I thought, I'm just unable to concisely say, what, what the promised land actually is. So let me try to say it without anything being on the video wall. The promised land, now listen very carefully, listen and say amen, is the abundant life that is yours in Jesus Christ. Now how's that for conciseness? <laughs> it is the abundant life that is yours in Jesus Christ. When you got saved, you not only received Jesus, you received a whole new life. In in Christ is life. He is not only the light of the world, He is the life of the world. And so the abundant life represents the joy. This this is why I didn't put it on the screen because I'm fixing to go and say a lot of words. It is the joy, the peace, the purpose, the meaning, the hope, the enthusiasm, the excitement, the anticipation, the energy, the, the sheer gladness that should characterize every one of us as children of God. And notice what I've said. The abundant life, or the promised land, is the abundant life that is ours in Jesus Christ. It is not something that, that God is going to give us out there 20 years from now after we've read through the Bible five more times or 10 more times. No. When you got saved, you received a brand new life. And yet, for many of us, I have to say us, we're not experiencing the abundant life in all of its fullness. Let me give you an illustration that many of you have heard. I'll jazz up the story a little bit so I'll make it sound fresh and new, but it's an old, old preacher story that makes a tremendous point. It's 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 a great preacher illustration. There was a husband and wife, and they were celebrating their 50th anniversary, and so their kids and their Kids' spouses and grandkids wanted to give them a nice gift for their 50th wedding. And what should we get mom and dad for their 50th? And one of them said, well, you know, 
Mom and dad have lived a frugal life. They've, they've made a, a good living, but a modest living, and they've spent all their money raising us. Why don't we really splurge? Why don't we send them on a cruise? Why don't we buy them a, 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 two tickets to go on a cruise? We'll fly them to Hawaii. They can get on a cruise there, uh, on a cruise ship on the island of Oahu, and they can go to all the 10-day cruise, hit all the Hawaiian islands. And so the kids pool their money together. They went to the parents' house. Hey, it's your 50th happy anniversary. We've gotten you a gift. Two tickets, Royal Caribbean cruise, all the Hawaiian islands. Well, the parents were just amazed. They'd never, done, they'd never taken a vacation that extravagant. And so they were so excited, and they began to study about the islands. What would they be seeing? They packed their bags. They caught the plane. They flew to Oahu. They got on the ship, and they're walking around, and they're seeing all these thousands of people, this beautiful ship, and the ship set sail, and now they're seeing the sights, the the Pacific Ocean, the islands, the, the scenery, and they began to stop at this island, Kauai. Now they're in Maui. Now they're on the big island of Hawaii. All these islands. Well, early on in the cruise, on the cruise, the husband said to the wife, he said, you know, I can't believe we got the best kids in the world. Do something like this for us. Send us on this cruise. But there's no telling what they spent. There is no telling what they spent. They're out on deck one day looking at all this. They're looking at all the food, the the breakfast bar, the the waffle machine at night, the lobsters, the midnight buffet, the chocolate bar, the hamburgers. I mean, all if you've been on a cruise, you know it's known for its food. And so the husband said to the wife, look, we've never been on a cruise before. Not quite sure how this works, but I'm pretty sure if we get in line and go through to get that, we've got to give them our key or our room number or something, and they're going to bill the kids, and the kids have already spent too much on this cruise, and so... Let's don't, there's no telling what they're charging for all these meals. And so, you know, I packed some snacks. I've got some Pop-Tarts for breakfast. Got some, some Ritz crackers and some peanut butter for snacks. And, and we've got some goldfish. And look, we, we don't need to eat all that. The kids, they spent enough money. And so they, but that's what they did. Some of the mornings they went out, they ate on deck. Everybody else was eating this huge gourmet breakfast. They're over there eating their Pop-Tarts and drinking their bottled water from the room. And so anyway, the, the cruise gets over. They fly back home. They get together with the family to show them pictures and to get a report, give a report on the trip. And the daughter says, Mom, Dad, tell us about the, the trip. And they tell them all the sites and all the islands and all that stuff. And then she said, well, tell us this. How was the food? How was the food? She and her husband had been on a cruise. They knew how it worked. How was the food? And the father said, I'm telling you what, that food looked fantastic. And she said, well, I'm glad it looked fantastic, but how did it taste? How was it? Oh, you know, your mom and I talked about it. There's no telling what y'all spent on that trip. We don't really know how it tasted because we decided we don't want to run up the bill anymore. And so we just, we had plenty of snacks. We were happy with what we have. And so the food looked great. I know it was great, but you'll be happy. No more bills are coming your way because we didn't, we didn't eat any of the food. And the girl says to her parents, you got, you don't understand. When we bought the tickets, the food was included. And that father's replaying all that food he saw. He thought, man, we must be the dumbest people in the world to have passed up all that. Now listen, the tie-in for us is so obvious with what I'm saying tonight. When you receive Jesus Christ, the food was included. All the abundant life that Jesus experienced when he was living on this earth. Let me ask you a question. How many of you ever get worried about something? Raise your hand. You ever get worried? How many of you ever... uh, get upset about something? Raise your hand. You get a little upset about something. How many of you ever get anxious or fearful about something? How many of you, let me ask this, how many of you ever get in a hurry and you, can't, you feel like you can't get there on time? How many of you like that? You know what I've decided? I would rather be late than be in a hurry, and I'm always late. I'm always about five minutes late. 
but I'm seldom in a hurry. We raised our hand on all these things because we experience all that. Let me ask you this. Yes or no, was Jesus ever worried? Was Jesus ever anxious? Was Jesus ever afraid? Was Jesus ever in a hurry? I can't find anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus is in a hurry. I mean, I can find Jesus going on missions, doing things, and I think, man, if I would have been Jesus, I would have been in a hurry. Jesus was never in a hurry. He was calm. He was cool. He had it together. And when we received him, we received his life. That is the promised land. Do you see why I couldn't put all that on the screen tonight? How am I going to put all that on the screen? The promised land is the abundant life that is ours in Jesus Christ. And yet we, like the children of Israel, have spent and are spending far too much time wandering around in the wilderness when we need to move forward by faith into the promised land that is ours. Now, take your Bible and open it to Deuteronomy chapter number 6. And I want to show you tonight, just at the, this part of the sermon, the verse that we looked at last week. And for those of you who were not here last week, I'm going to bring you up to speed. And I already have, really. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verse 23, this was our entire focus last Wednesday night. Notice what it says. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 23. Then he, that is God, brought us out, underline that preposition, out, from there, that is from Egypt, that he might bring us in. Underline that word in. He brought us out that he might bring us in. Now, I've, I've kind of condensed that verse just to make the point. He brought us out that he might bring us in. Let me condense it more. He brought us out to bring us in. Say that with me. He brought us out to bring us in. Say it again. He brought us out of Egypt, out of our lostness. Why? To bring us into the promised land. You see, when God saved you, he didn't just save you so you wouldn't have to go to hell when you died. He brought you out so that he could bring you in to the promised land here and now, the abundant life that is ours in Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about that tonight, before I even go any farther, good question now, where are you currently? Lost in Egypt, in bondage. Wandering around in the wilderness, your life is going around in circles. Or have you made it into the promised land? Not not that circumstances are perfect, but where you're at peace and where you are satisfied with the life that God has given to you. He brought us out to bring us in. Now, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, because it's interesting how God works, because last Wednesday night, in my notes, and I wish I'd brought my notes to just kind of show you where I had this, at the very end of my sermon notes last Wednesday night, I had made a note, 1 Corinthians 10, in the sermon in 1 Corinthians 10, and talk about some of the reasons why Christians never make it into the promised land. Well, By the time I got to that part of the sermon last Wednesday night, the time was up. And so I went home, and as I told you last Wednesday night, when I got home, I wanted to fold clothes. I wanted to watch a basketball game. I needed to read my Bible a little bit. And I ended up getting back into this sermon outline, and God showed me last Wednesday night what to talk about tonight. And so I'm picking up with where we are right here, and tonight we're thinking about five ways to miss your promised land. Now, if when I said, where are you, some of you probably, if you're honest, would say, I'm lost in Egypt. I'm under bondage. The devil is ruining my life. Well, you need to get saved, and you can get saved in a minute. I would suspect, I'm not going to ask for anybody to raise it, I would suspect there are some here tonight, probably a good number, if they were honest, who would say, John, 
I have had some seasons in the promised land. I know what that's like. But somehow I have regressed and I'm in the wilderness. Or some would say, I'm not sure I've ever been into the promised land. I just don't feel like I'm experiencing the abundance that you are describing. Well, what I want to show you tonight from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is five ways to miss your promised land. Five things that you can do that I can guarantee you if you'll do any of these five things, you will not enter the promised land. You will wander in the wilderness and it is right here in this passage. Now, before I get into the list, and I'm not going to belabor the list. I'll give it to you, show it to you in the Scripture, comment briefly. But let's look in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians beginning in verse number 1. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Talking about when Moses led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. God dried it up, and they went through on dry land. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. They ate the manna there in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Remember, God brought water out of the rock. Now, watch what this is descri- described as here, this water. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, they didn't understand what was happening. But they were eating that manna from heaven, the food that God provided for them every day. And in John chapter 6, in the New Testament, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. That Old Testament manna was a picture of me. And just like they had to partake of that bread every day... You have to spend time in my presence every day. And remember in the Old Testament, Jesus would say how they got out there in the desert and they were thirsty. And God told Moses to strike that rock. And he struck that rock and water came out. That water was a picture of me because I'm the water of life. See, they, they didn't understand that. But that was all a picture of Jesus. And here Paul makes it clear. He says that rock was Christ. Jesus is the rock and the water from the rock. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They never made it to the promised land. They died in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And there we see the first way to miss your promised land. If, you're, if you've got your outline, let me just, lick, just kind of tick these off. We'll go right down the verse. Five ways to miss your promised land. Way number one, lusting. Lusting, notice again what it says, to the extent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, what did they lust after? What were they want? What does it mean, by the way, to lust? To lust is to desire something that you're not supposed to have. That's lust. If you look, Jesus said, if you look, if he's talking, he's talking to a male audience, he said, if you men look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. You haven't committed the act. But in your heart, you've lusted, you've committed adultery in your heart. To lust after something is to want something that God doesn't want you to have. Now, in the Old Testament, what's he talking about? What were they lusting about? Well, they were eating this bread in the wilderness every day. They wanted meat. They wanted some meat to eat. They said, we're tired of eating this bread. We want meat. And they were complaining to Moses and against God, why can't we have some meat to eat? And so finally, God began to feed them some meat. And he gave them quail. They're eating quail in the morning, quail at night, bread in the morning. I mean, they're eating that meat. And they ate so much meat 
that the, that the Bible says that, that it was like the meat started just to come out their nose because they had so much meat. But the point here is they were wanting something that God did not want them to have. God intended for them to be satisfied with the manna. But for them, the manna wasn't enough. Now, what does the manna represent? Well, I just told you. It represents Jesus. How, do we, how are we guilty of lusting? You say, well, if you look and have immoral thoughts. That, well, it is lust. But, but really what it is, you're not satisfied with Jesus. Because Jesus is the manna. And so you're asking Jesus and God, you're complaining now that they've not given you something else. So lusting is the first problem. And, and I'll tell you the cure for lusting. It's easier said than done. I wish I could do it as easily as I can sit down up here and say it. But the cure for lusting, whether it's for uh, a, more money, a better job, notoriety, fame, recognition, another person, whatever it is, the, the cure for lusting is to learn to be satisfied and content with what God has given you. The way I said that last Wednesday night, it's, it, again, it's easier said than done. Embrace the place where God has you in life. None of our lives is perfect. I mean, all of us would probably change two or three things if we, if, if we could. But life doesn't work that way. And so we have to just embrace the place. We can't, you know, we can't, we can't lust after, after things that God doesn't intend for us to have or that he does not intend for us to have right now. Second way to miss your promised land, idolatry. Look in verse number 7. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, talking about how they worshiped that golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. Instead of worshiping God, now they're worshiping a golden calf. And idolatry is something that all of us have probably been guilty of. You say, John, I've never worshiped a golden calf. I've never worshiped a wooden statue. I've never worshiped any other God. Well, no, and I haven't either. But I imagine if we're honest, there have been times in our life when something or somebody other than God has taken more of our thoughts, more of our time, and more of our energy. Anything that we think about, talk about, or desire more than God is an idol to us. It could be anything. And so we just commit idolatry in a different way. And the third thing that you can do to miss your promised land is participate in sexual immorality. Look in verse number 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Sexual immorality. Uh, sexual immorality is sin against God. And you can't live in the promised land if you're involved in sin. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 that when we, in fact, just go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. We'll just look at this. And he's talking about sexual immorality. And we read in verse number 13. Turn back just a few pages. I'm not hearing, hearing you turn your pages there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And look at verse 13, the middle of the verse. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the Bible is clear 
that we should stay clear of sexual immorality because if we commit that sin, uh, it doesn't mean that if we're saved, we would lose our salvation, but it does mean that we would lose our fellowship with God. Now, I'll tell you what else it means. It means if sexual immorality is a lifestyle, now, if it's a, like David committed sexual immorality, he should never have done that. He should never have committed adultery with Bathsheba, but he did. Well, God forgave that sin. But as you study the life of David, his whole life was not one of sexual immorality. The Bible says if a person's lifestyle is one of sexual immorality, then that person has never been saved. And so there's nothing good about sexual immorality, and that's why the Bible says simply flee sexual immorality. Now, a fourth way to miss the promised land is tempting God or speaking negatively against God. Look in verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And so they were in, in, in fact, ways four and five kind of go together. They were out there in the wilderness, and they were griping, and they were speaking negatively of God, and God sent those serpents, and man, the people were killed uh, before Moses built the bronze serpent, and then the people's lives who looked up were spared. And then the fifth way to miss your promised land is by complaining. Look in verse number 10. Nor complain, as some of them also complain, and were destroyed by the destroyer. They're complaining because they don't have enough food to eat complaining because they don't have enough water to drink, complaining because they wish they were back in Egypt instead of out there in that hot, dry desert. Now, as you look at that list that I've just given you, five ways to miss your promised land. Look at it. Lusting, we look at that and say, well, I know I shouldn't do that. Idolatry, we say, well, I know that's wrong. Got to stay away from that. Sexual immorality, got to stay away from that. God, keep me away from that. Tempting God, we know we shouldn't tempt God. But look at this fifth way, complaining. One of the reasons these people died in the wilderness wasn't just that they were doing these what we call, you know, high-dollar sins, <laughs> these big sins, these capital S sins. I mean, they're bad sins. But one of the reasons these people died is because they were complaining against God. And it says to me and it says to us, if you want to spend the rest of your life in the wilderness instead of in the promised land, just complain about as many things as you possibly can. Because if you will complain, you see, when you complain against something, what are you saying? You are really saying God is not in control of this situation. Now, complaining, that is one of those sins that we commit that when we commit it, nobody else, including ourselves, even recognizes it as a sin. We just think, well, yeah, if that happened to me, I'd probably be complaining too. You know, we, complaining is just part of life. I'll give you a recent illustration about complaining in my own life. I got home from church the other day. In fact, I'll tell you this story. My parents, about three weeks ago, called me one Saturday and said, John, one of our air-conditioned units is out at our house. Now, by the way, this is such a good story, I'm going to tell it on a Sunday morning. So when I tell it again, play like you never heard it. You agree with that? Say amen. Because if you don't, you're going to laugh when you're supposed to laugh, like when you hear it on Sunday. Because if you don't, I'm not going to tell it right now. Because, uh, but I'm giving you my best. I'm giving you a booklet tonight. I'm giving you Sunday morning illustrations right now. They called me on Saturday and said, hey, we, we can sleep over here at our house because there's air in the bedroom, but there's not air in the kitchen or the house. So tomorrow after church, can we come to your house? Can we eat lunch at your house? And can we just stay over there at your house all that till it's time for us to go back home and go to bed? I said, absolutely. So after church, they went to their house to change clothes, and they drove to my house. Well, when I walked in my house, I thought it felt a little hot in the house. 
And so I went and looked at the air. Long story, I won't bore you with the details. I thought my air was out, which it was. But the reason my air was out is because my main power line from my house to the center point box, it was out. I had lost, one of the legs was gone. And so they drove up in my house, to my, in my driveway. I went out to greet them. My dad, they had their shorts. They were so comfortable, so excited. I said, man, just thankful we got more than one house in the family. We can be cool today. I said, well, dad, I got some bad news for you. We don't have any air in this house either. And so I thought, man, and I worked on it and finally got center point out there. And they came out there and said, well, the problem's not on our end. The problem's on your end. And what you've got to do is call your electrician in the morning, get them to come out here. They're going to have to dig a trench, replace the line, and so on. And so I called them, great electrical company here in, uh, in, in Deer Park, wonderful uh, residential electric, wonderful people. And so they came out there the next day, and they were digging that trench. Well, I went, went over there to, uh, to, to kind of see, you know, what, how it was going, what they were, what they were doing on that deal. And by, the, by the time that time had happened, by the way, my parents' air had completely come back on. And so I was able to go sleep in their upstairs room that night. Went back to my house Monday morning. The guys were out there digging the trench. And I go out there and introduce myself. And I said, my house is like 86 degrees. It's hot. 80, 80, between 80 and 86 degrees this time. So I couldn't be in there. It was miserable. They're digging the trench. I said, hey, appreciate what y'all are doing. I'm going to let you do what you do. I'm going to go to work. I said, just want you to know, as you're doing this digging here, be careful not to hit my cable line. Because a man's got to have cable, right? And the fellow looked up at me and said, Sir, I, I'm sorry, we just, we just hit it. And now I'm talking about complaining right now, right? I have no air. I can't even sleep in my house. Now I don't have any cable. And so I said to myself, It's okay, John. God's in control. So I went inside. I, it, was, it, was, it was still early, so I was able to go in and be inside for a while, do some things. Time for me to come to church. I went back out there again. I said, guys, I'm going to be leaving now. I said, listen, cable line, you hit it, no problem. I get Comcast out here, they'll fix it. I said, just want to put it in your mind. I got an AT&T phone line out there. Try not to hit that either. Guy said, you know, sir, we just, we, just hit, we just nicked that line. We just hit that line. And I'm standing there thinking, it's hot. I lost my air. I lost my cable. Now I can't talk on the phone and complain about this when I get back living in this house. But I'm thinking to myself, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking all of that, certainly. But I'm thinking what I'm always preaching. God is in control. God is in control. Now, you know, I never have found it difficult to stand up here in a pulpit and say to you, God is in control. It has never been hard in this setting to say God is in control. But I'll tell you this. There have been some times in my life, and I know in yours, you get out there in it, and it's hard to really believe God is in control when these things happen. I said, this is no problem. I said, uh, I'll get it all fixed. And so, long story short, all the problem is fixed. Everything's put back together, and everything's good again. But the point I'm making is, I stand up here tonight and say, if you complain, you're going to miss the promised land. And we sit here in church, we say, well, you know what, that's right. We shouldn't complain. Let me tell you something. You go home tonight and they cut your cable line and cut your phone line, you're going to be tempted to complain, right? If I go home tonight and God forbid my air's out, I'm going to be tempted to complain, right? What, what, am I, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to say God is in control of the situation. And Romans 8, 28, we'll get the last word. And people, even though I can't believe it, did live a long time before cable came out. 
And the fact is, people lived a long time before air conditioning came out, right? And so I will make it. And so what I'm saying to you tonight is, look at that list and ask yourself at this time in your life, are you committing any of those sins? So let me just walk through it again, then we're going to stop. Are you lusting for something, for someone, for somewhere, for some situation that you think would be better for you, but it's not the place where God has you right now? You're not embracing your place. You're wanting something else in life. How about idolatry? Today, has anything dominated more of your thoughts than God? Sexual immorality? That's a pretty easy one to identify if you're guilty of that or not. If you are guilty, I just encourage you tonight to confess it to God and repent and get forgiven and stop doing it. And you'll be fine. How about tempting God? That is speaking negatively about God. And how about this last one? Complaining about your circumstances. You see, just because we say, with with God's help, I'm not going to complain about my circumstances... That doesn't mean our circumstances are perfect. It just means that we have chosen not to complain about our circumstances. And that's an amazing thing. And so, if we will uh, avoid those things, we'll be okay. Now, look in verse 11, then we're going to stop. 11 through 13. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. When I went through that list tonight and started listing off idolatry, sexual immorality, you know, lusting, all this, you might have looked at it and said, man, I would never do something like that. Well, I hope you wouldn't, and I hope I wouldn't, but you better look at this verse. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is no sin that under the wrong conditions you're not capable of committing if you're not walking in the Spirit. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. That situation in your life right now that you're tempted to complain about, somebody had a similar problem 50 years ago. Somebody had a similar problem 100 years ago. Somebody's got a similar problem right now. They may live in Idaho or they may live in Arizona or they may live down the street, but they've got a similar problem because no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so whatever the temptation, whether it's some of these sins or complaining, we can escape that if we will refuse to do it. Now, as I close tonight, I made a list when I wrote this sermon. I wrote this sermon, I think, uh, last Wednesday, but I actually wrote it out on Monday. And here's what I wrote. The opposite of complaining is thanksgiving, right? I mean, complaining, I'm telling God and everybody who will listen, everything is wrong with my life, right? And, and I'm telling myself everything's wrong with my life. But when I'm thankful, I'm telling God and everybody who will listen, I'm telling myself everything that's right with my life. And I made a short list here that I want to just give you some things as you go from home tonight that you, are, that you and I both ought to be thankful for. And if we'll spend more of our time being thankful for these types of things, then we won't spend so much time complaining. They cut the phone line. They cut the cake. We won't, we, we won't like it. It will frustrate us, but it won't ruin our day. 
Here's, here's some things that you should be thankful for. Number one, and this ought to be at the top of the list, your salvation. When's the last time you thanked God that you were saved? You say, when's the last time you thanked God, John, that you were saved? This morning. I thank God every day that I'm saved. Every day that I'm saved. And, and I'm sure you do too, but if not, you ought to get that in your morning prayer. God, thank you that I'm saved. Number two, you should thank God for your eyesight. If you can look up here and see me, you ought to thank God for that. Now, I may not be much to look at, but you can see me. Let me tell you something. If you were blind, here's what you would be thinking tonight. If I could just see, I would never complain about anything else again. When I had an eye problem in 2014 that really messed me up for a while, I mean, it, was not as, it wasn't really serious, but it was bad vision for a while. I, had, I gained a new appreciation for people who have problems with their eyes. And I'm telling you tonight, if you can see, don't take it for granted. Because if you couldn't see, that would become the most important thing in your life. Number three thing you should thank God for, your ability to hear. Proverbs 20 and verse 12 says, if you have good eyesight and good hearing, you better thank God for that. When is the last time you thanked God for your eyesight and for your hearing? I try to remember to thank God for that every day of my life. The next one, your ability to walk. Most of us walked in this room tonight. Now, some had to come in wheelchairs. And you think that doesn't touch God to see that dedication. But for those of us who can walk, we should thank God for the ability to walk. I'll tell you something else you should thank God for. For the ability to eat. The ability to eat. Have you ever had a time in your life where you were so stressed out you couldn't eat? I have. I, 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 I have. And that's a bad way to live because, for one thing, I like food, right? And I know you do too. But I'm just saying the ability to eat and to process food. And I'll tell you, the last thing I put on my list, I could have put a lot of things. You ought to thank God for the ability to speak. For the ability to speak. When I had vocal cord surgery and couldn't speak, I had a new appreciation for speaking. I had, I had never given a thought to the gift of speaking. And I remember one night I was in Kroger trying to buy some hamburger meat. And I couldn't talk. And there I was, and I, I got to the, where they sell the meat, and I'm wanting to ask the butcher, do you have this particular type of meat? And I couldn't talk. And I got out my pen, and I got out my tablet, and I wrote out my question. And he answered it. And I, it was fine. But I, I mean, it, was, it wasn't life-threatening. It wasn't as serious as what some of you are going through right now. But I'll tell you one thing. It's a mess not to be able to talk. And when I finally got my ability to talk back, my doctor said to me, after I couldn't talk for nearly two months, he said to me, okay, now you can talk, but here's the deal. You can talk for five minutes an hour. That's it. And I'm going to tell you what, that was harder than not talking at all. Because now you're having to choose what to say and what not to say. I'm saying to you tonight, if you can, on your way home tonight, call your spouse, call your parent, call your friend, you better thank God for that. I don't think we should take these blessings for granted. God has been good to us. I think we would all agree with that, right? If we look around, we can find a lot of things to complain about. If we look a little harder, we can find a lot of things to be thankful about. 
I encourage you. are going to probably drive a car tonight when you get in that car. Thank God. When's the last time you thank God for your car? When's the last time you thank God for your house? When's the last time you thank God you had enough money to put gas in your car and pay the bills on your house? I'm telling you, you don't have to look, but you have to think. So many things that we take for granted, if we would focus on those things, our complaining would go down, our thanksgiving would go up, and we would move into the promised land that Jesus has for us. Amen?